Well, if you haven't already, turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 5, where we will pick up our study of this wonderful gospel. What would Jesus do? It was a question that was first asked back in 1896 by a gentleman named Charles Sheldon, who wrote a book called In His Steps. And that question became very, very popular in the 1990s, particularly in youth groups around the country. And um, fortunately, as we moved into the new century, that hype slowly faded away um, up until this past year when the question resurfaced. Only this time, it took a different form. Uh, It was more specific. Um, The people that were asking had a a more uh, specific intent, and in some cases, they were more agenda-driven. And I don't, uh, we don't need to talk about or list what those um, different forms of the question looked like. If you want to talk about that over coffee or via email, we can do that at your convenience. What I want to do, though, is ask you to consider something. Before we jump into the text tonight, I want to ask you to consider two other questions. Two other questions that I believe are more important than the one that I've just mentioned. They're more significant because I believe the answers are more helpful to us. They're more helpful, and at the same time, they challenge us, and they push us out of our comfort zone more than Mr. Sheldon's question. And those two questions are these. What did Jesus come to do? And what has Jesus done? What has Jesus come to do and what has he done? And our passage tonight answers both of those questions. Our outline is in the back of your bulletin. For those of you who are guests, it's on the last page there if you want to follow along. It looks like this. We're going to look at the authority that Jesus exercised the controversy that Jesus excited, the company that Jesus entertained, and then the hostility that Jesus encountered. And as is our custom, let's go to the Lord in prayer before we we do that. Uh, Father, by your Spirit, would you awaken our attention, and would you refresh us and encourage us and convict us and comfort us as we see Jesus and hear his gospel tonight? I admit that I am weak, and I'm needy, and I'm unfit in and of myself for this task, so I would ask that you would grant me support and strength, and that you would fill me with your spirit in order that I might be a pure channel of your grace this evening. Help me to communicate with clarity and fluency and fervency, and with grace. For the sake of Christ and his church, in Jesus' name, amen and amen. Well, we've seen over these last three weeks, of course, that news of Jesus and his power and his authority was spreading quickly throughout the region. Uh, And to this point, the people had observed his authority and power in the physical realm 
uh, as he, well, over in the spiritual, let's go to the spiritual realm first as he exercised demons. And then, of course, they saw his power and his authority in the physical realm as he began to heal others. Uh, those that in verse 40 of chapter 4, Luke says, uh, who had been brought to him that were sick with various diseases. And that phrase, brought to him, is very, very important for us because it tells us when he arrives in this particular city, a city that Luke chooses to not name, that his level of authority that people started to recognize began to move up, right? The, the level began to increase, that, that authority that he was exercising began to change. It moved to a new level. And verse 12 says that there came a man. And this man wasn't brought by a family member. He wasn't brought by a friend like those in chapter 4. Because this man wasn't simply um, quarantined, he wasn't simply isolated, he had been ostracized. He had been kicked out and removed from his family. He had been kicked out and removed from society as a whole. He had been cast outside of the city. He had been cast outside of the gate. No one could go near him because in Luke's words, he was full of leprosy. More than likely, this man's skin was ashy and white. He had sores, he was full of sores that were oozing. Um, his face and his extremities were possibly swollen to the point of deformity. He was probably in great pain due to nerve damage that was associated with it. His clothes were torn. His hair was long and unkept. He had to walk around with his finger above his upper lip crying out, unclean, unclean, so that there was no mistake of who he was and what he had. He was socially and ceremonially unclean. He wasn't just considered ill. He was considered walking dead. You want an accurate picture, just think of Robert the Bruce's father toward the end of Braveheart. And it was a condition that was perfect, that, that perfectly illustrated the sinful condition of mankind. And that's why God used it as such. As we, if you remember from our study of Leviticus. God had chosen to use leprosy in that way. So it's no wonder that the people at that time considered, uh, considered it to be, the leprosy to be caused by, or at least a curse for the man's sin. So for him to walk into town was absolutely unthinkable. He was breaking every, violating every social and political and spiritual mandate that had been put in place due to his condition, and, and those who saw him were probably terrified, not just terrified, but even nauseated. They would cover their own eyes, they would cover their eyes of their children, they would run away in the opposite direction in disgust, and none of that mattered to him. One commentator said, desperation joined with conviction produced a recklessness that drove him despite all hindrances and barriers to Jesus. And when he finds Jesus, Luke says in verse 12 that he fell on his face begging the Lord, if you will, 
you can make me clean. Notice, for this man, it wasn't a matter of whether or not the Lord could. It was only a question of if he would. Would he? And unlike Peter that we saw last week in the boat, who was in the presence of the Lord and he fell on his face and begged the Lord to leave, this man comes and in his condition finds the Lord, throws himself down and begs him to stay. Heal me. Cleanse me. Take away this this illness, this disease. Make me whole. He was begging for a complete and total transformation that would affect him physically and spiritually and socially because it would restore his health, it would restore his relationships, it would restore his standing so that he could go to the temple and worship. And in verse 13, we see the beginning again of Jesus' authority, that level beginning to increase because he was both willing and able to do what the man had asked. Luke says he stretched out his hand, he touched him, and said, I will be clean. And the man immediately, immediately the leprosy left him. Jesus did what nobody else could do. With one touch, he did what the nature of the disease had declared was out of bounds. And with one word, he not only removed the disease, but he restored the man completely and totally to health. The man and the people, as you can imagine, were, in, were left in awe, amazed. Because typically when something, when something or someone clean touched something or someone unclean, that person or thing became unclean. But in this case, what was unclean became clean. It was just the opposite of what was normally the case. And this cure was, was immediate and complete and it didn't take place in stages. It was immediately verifiable, which is why Jesus said, all right, go. Go to the priest. Fulfill your seven to eight days that it's required by the law at the temple. And do that to fulfill the law, but more importantly, do that because you're going to be a witness to the priests that are there. And they're going to see that you're healing. What I've just done for you is, in fact, a reality. And that witness would, of course, go from the priest to the religious leaders that be. And due to the fact that that sin was not only closely related, as we've already said, closely related to, um, you know, that the, to all illness and all disease, in many cases it was believed that, that the sin was, you know, was not only related to but was that actual cause, particularly leprosy, everyone, including the man, including those who would have seen it take place, including those that heard his testimony, including the, the word of mouth that would, began to, that would begin to move throughout the region, everybody would understand that the, the authority that he had been exhibiting, it was now changing. 
right? The level was increasing. And we're going to see that, that that is in fact the case in these next 11 verses. But before we move on, I think it's important for us to pause and allow the significance of this event, not only to remind us, but wash over us. Allow it, allow it to wash over us and renew our appreciation for what Christ has done for us. Because all of us were walking dead in our trespasses and sins. All of us were unclean. All of us had been ostracized. We had been placed outside of the camp, outside of the gate. We were, we were at odds with God, separated from Him due to the contamination of our sin. But we've now been made alive. We've been washed and cleansed by the blood of a gracious merciful and righteous and compassionate Savior, and we've been restored to fellowship with our Creator because of what Christ has done for us. He's cleansed our sin. He's cleansed our guilt. He's cleansed our grief. He's cleansed our pain. He's cleansed us from our past, and we have been made whole. In Paul's words, he who knew no sin became sin that we might be the righteousness of God. In the writer of Hebrews, he said he suffered outside the camp in order that we would be sanctified by his own blood. He bore our sin. He was taken outside of the camp where he was oppressed and afflicted and pierced and crushed and chastised for us that we might enter and remain in fellowship with him eternally. He was both willing and able and compassionate. He, he touched the man. His healing word restored him that day. And brothers and sisters, he continues to be both willing and able to restore anyone and everyone who will repent of their sin and come to him in faith. Trusting him alone for their salvation. That's good news. And that's the good news that he came to proclaim. And that's why we periodically sing the hymn from Joseph Hart that was revised by Matthew Smith, right? We sang it a couple of weeks ago, I think, Aaron. Come ye sinners, poor and wretched, weak and wounded, sick and poor. Jesus, ready, stands to save you, full of pity and joined with power. He is what? Able. He is willing. Doubt no more. The gospel. For you and for me, recipients of that. Well, as you can imagine, um, as this word continued to spread and more and more people began to come. Uh, those growing numbers increased the burden that he was feeling to, to, to heal and to provide for all those that were coming. And then he also had to deal with this increased strain of his own popularity and the celebrity status that probably began to take hold. And so to get a break to clear his mind, to reset, to, um, to reorient himself. Verse 16 says that he, he escaped and withdrew to a quiet place alone so that he could pray. It was something that 
Jesus was never too busy to do. It was something that Jesus would never be too powerful to need. But he would go away and meet with the Father. And this isn't the first time that Luke has mentioned this, and this won't be the last time that he mentions this. And with what's just around the corner, it all makes sense. And I guess, and I can simply say that this applies itself without a whole lot of effort. Right? If Jesus needed to do this, if Jesus made this a regular, a regular, made this a regular part of his life, if he needed these moments of respite and prayer and took time to do it, don't we need and shouldn't we as well? That brings us to the controversy that Jesus excited. In verse 17, Luke describes another occasion in which Jesus was teaching. But this time it's standing room only in this house. Um, and there are religious leaders present uh, from the region as a whole, Pharisees and, and uh, scribes. They were a very interesting bunch. They had kind of lost their way. They, they had a zeal for the law, but unfortunately, um, it would have been commendable had they not begun to become so externally focused and fixated and fans of their own man-made traditions. They had become blind to their own self-righteousness. They had begun to cling uh, to their own system of legalism that they had put in place. And now, really, all they were doing was suffocating uh, those spiritually around them. Luke says a group of four friends um, hear that Jesus is nearby, and they each grab a corner of a mat upon which a friend of theirs who is paralyzed spends most of his days and all of his nights. And they take him to Jesus. They carried him to this house because Luke says they wanted to bring him in and lay him before Jesus, no doubt believing that Jesus would in fact heal him. But when they arrive, there's no room to get in the door, there's no room to get in the window, and nobody was willing to give up their spot because they're in close proximity of Jesus. They don't want anybody else to, to move in front. But the men are not deterred. The man himself on the mat is not deterred. And they take the mat and they carry it up the outside stairs up to the roof. And they begin to dig a hole. It's got to be a hole big, right? big enough not to just, you know, they're not going to lower him down by his feet. They're going to lower him down by the mat. And so it's got to be six feet by four feet at least. And there's no telling how deep the roof was. So this is a, a significant um, a, a significant job before them. And you know, many of you, it's funny, many of you apologize from time to time um, after the service because of noise that took place on your particular row, uh, particularly, particularly during the, the sermon. And, and I've always said to you, it does not bother me at all because it reminds me of the wonderful makeup of our sweet church and that you as parents are committed to your children worshiping with you. It's a blessing. But I'm not so sure how I would do with wood chunks falling from the ceiling 
and insulation and tiles and you all looking up and wondering and me wondering. I, I don't think that is a distraction that I could overcome. But Jesus did. Jesus knew what was going on. The man is lowered down. Um, there was probably murmuring going on when all that stuff was falling. And, but then when he begins to be lowered, they probably were, were hushed. And the body lands before Jesus. And then there's this collective gasp. Because Jesus says, or Luke says, when he saw their faith, Jesus said, man, your sins are forgiven. Jesus responded to the faith of those five men. He responded to the man on the mat that was willing for his friends. He wanted to be in front of Jesus. He was willing for them to go to the roof and to lower him down. And, and all, I mean, he had to, had to want that pretty badly to risk that. His four friends had faith and they were willing to do whatever it took to get him in front of Jesus. And, and while the physical paralysis was obviously something Jesus could, could deal with, Jesus has something better in mind first and foremost. He first addresses the spiritual problem of the man on the mat. And this is why we see a controversy excited. The scribes and Pharisees were not yet comfortable. They're going to be in just a couple of verses. But at this point, they're not yet comfortable to say out loud what they're thinking. But they're all thinking the same thing in their mind. And the, one of the questions is, right. they're right in one respect. But in another respect, they're not. They're right when they're thinking in their minds, only God can for, forgive sins. That's absolutely correct. But where they're wrong and where they strayed was that Jesus was speaking blasphemies. And they, they, that's wrong because he himself was in fact God. So there was no blasphemy here. And Jesus, knowing what they were thinking, in verse 23 answers, he, and he says to them, which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven or to say rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise up, pick up your mat, and go home. And obviously, the right answer is, of course, it's easier to say your sins are forgiven. Why? Because there are no fact checkers for that. That's something that could be said and it can't be verified. So he says, to prove that I have the authority to forgive sins and to prove that in fact this man has been forgiven today, I will also say, get up and rise and walk. And of course, the man did that immediately. Again, a healing that is immediate and complete. And again, we see that deeper level of authority coming out and people seeing that authority but then the controversy is excited because Jesus hadn't simply made a declaration of assurance of pardon as we do every week. Jesus actually forgave the man in front of him. And so immediately, 
immediately there is this, he puts to rest any idea that he's a lunatic. But the controversy is, he's either deity or not. A choice is now being put before people. And if, and if he's not deity, then he is, in fact, a liar, and he's not a good teacher, he's not a good man. But notice that the man himself and his friends and others who were there begin to rejoice, right, as, as they should have. They're filled, right, with all amazement seizes them because they realize that there are extraordinary things happening. They've just seen something very, not just unusual, but supernatural. And, and brothers and sisters, there is so much here that, I mean, we don't have time to, to apply all that's within this story. And so I had to choose one. And I just simply want to ask us some questions this evening. As a body, how... How far are we willing to go to meet the physical needs of our friends, of our family members, of our spiritual family members, of our neighbors? How much are we willing to expend to get people the help that they need? But let's also ask, what about their spiritual needs? Do we see the spiritual needs as more important and as the priority? And are we quick and diligent to meet those spiritual needs of our friends, of our family members, of our spiritual family members, and of our neighbors? Listen to these words from Pastor Philip Ryken. He sums it up this way, what people need more than anything else is for someone to bring them to Jesus. Overcoming all obstacles. Yet so often we let little things get in the way of inviting a friend to church or offering to pray for someone or bringing a Christ-centered perspective into a conversation or sharing the basic facts of the gospel. What people need is a direct, personal encounter with Jesus Christ. So we should do whatever we can to bring them to a place where they can experience his healing touch. And then he asks this, whom do you know that needs to know Jesus? And to what links are you willing to go in order to introduce them? And children, this is a question, this isn't just for our older adults and for your parents. Children, this is a question for you as well. And it's in, it is a question that you will be asked during your time of family worship on Wednesday night if you're doing that. And so begin thinking now, who is that friend that you know that needs Jesus? And how can you pray for them and what can you do to help in that? Well, that brings us to the company that Jesus keeps in verse 27 through 29. Like he did in the first 11 verses, um, Luke moves from these miracles to now the calling of disciples. And in verse 29, we're introduced to Levi or Matthew. Uh, he's a tax collector, and that meant several things. One, he probably spoke several languages. He had a business acumen about him. 
Um, he was rich, had a lot of money, but at the same time, he was considered a traitor and a cheat, um, and not only had earned his reputation, but had lived up to his reputation to the point that he had probably, probably been excommunicated. And while he's at work, Jesus comes to him, and Luke says, he simply says, follow me. And in verse 28, he says, Matthew, or Levi, left everything and followed. Just like Peter, James, and John. Now, for the fishermen, and we talked about this last week, right? Very, very important, a very significant choice to leave everything and to follow Jesus. But let's just pause for a minute and think about Peter, James, and John. If things went awry or things didn't quite work out the way they planned or maybe this wasn't all true, they could go back and as, and, you know, as soon as they found a boat and a couple of nets, they were back at it. Not so for Levi. He was forsaking everything. He, is, he had a bad reputation with folks on this side of the aisle. Now he's got, as he's leaving and forsaking his job, he's now got a bad reputation with folks on this side of the aisle. He can't go back. He is cutting ties completely. His, his break, th this is a, a decisive decision. It was all or nothing. But notice it's not something that he regretted or would regret it was actually, it was a decision he was celebrating, and it wasn't really the decision he was celebrating, it was Jesus that he was celebrating. Because it says that he threw Jesus a feast. Matthew prepared a feast and invited all of his friends, and guess who all of his friends are? Right? Tax collectors and sinners just like him, because of their reputations, right? They, all they had was one another. And they all come. And Matthew wanted them to meet Jesus too. And so even in this short little section, it's a great picture of those, uh, of how God in Christ saves sinners, is it not? Right? We, we see his election and his initiation and his effectual call. Of Matthew, and then we see uh, repentance and turning from sin and a former way of life to a new way of life and turning to Christ. And then we see him worshiping the Lord, and then he wants to tell others and witness of what's happened. But let's not miss the fact that he's that Jesus is reclining at table. He's, he's there reclining at the table. This wasn't a casual conversation in the backyard. It wasn't over coffee at the cafe. This is a sit-down meal. And to be invited to someone's house was significant. Because the person that was inviting was offering peace. He was offering friendship and fellowship and provision and safety. And Jesus in coming, not only was it an honor to be a guest, but it was even more so to be the guest of honor. And Jesus accepts and he comes and he sits and eats and drinks with sinners. And this isn't going to be the last time that he does that. This is what he, he does. It's a regular occurrence 
because he, he does not forget the liars and the cheaters and the slanderers and the abusers and the slaves to various passions and the lovers of self and material possessions and power. He hasn't forgotten the idolaters and the fornicators. He hasn't forgotten the adulterers and the prostitutes and the drunkards and the foolish and the disobedient. He obviously didn't condone the behavior. He didn't jump in and practice what they were practicing, but he also did not withdraw and isolate himself. Which, of course, leads to the hostility that he encountered. The hostility comes in verse 30. The Pharisees and the scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? They're now no longer silent. Before, they're just in their heads, not anymore. Right? They've, Jesus and these guys, they've crossed the line as far as the religious leaders are concerned. So they become vocal and they're complaining, right? And they're full of criticism and condescension and judgmentalism. And it's pronounced because they would condemn anyone who didn't believe the way they believed and didn't do and live as they lived. And in their minds, nobody could love God and, and be filled with any type of spiritual or moral integrity if they were hanging out with folks like these. Not to mention eat with them. So they've, they've made their decision that God and, or that Jesus and his disciples weren't acting as good, God-fearing men. And they were setting themselves up to become spiritually impure. And, of course, Jesus doesn't shy away at all from answering this question, but what's interesting is he confronts them without being confrontational. And he says, those of you, or those... This is how he's not, he's confrontational, but not, uh, or he's, he's confronting them, but not confrontational in that he says, those who are, right, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Jesus says, why do we eat and drink? Right? Why do we eat and drink with people like these? Because they need help. Just like the sick need a doctor. Sinners need a Savior. And I was sent to preach the good news of the kingdom to people just like them. That's what I've been sent to do. That's what I've been called to do. I've come to call them to change their minds and to agree with God regarding what is pleasing to Him and what is not, what is sin and what is not. I've come to call people to recognize their sin and how it leaves them in need, in desperate need, and guilty before God. I've come to call them to forsake their sin and, and to turn to the Lord, to turn actually, you know, to turn to me, who is the only one to provide healing and forgiveness. Those who think they have it all together, those who have that believe they're spiritually healthy, those that believe that they can rely on their own self-righteousness, those who believe that they have it all together and no need for a savior. It's not who I want to be around. 
Actually, that's not who I need to be around. Brothers and sisters, we've not been called to withdraw from the world. We've not been called to isolate ourselves from sinners. We've not been called to judge those outside of our body. Self-righteousness, condescension, judgmentalism, legalism are not to be named among us. We must always keep the words from Paul to Titus and therefore to us in the forefronts of our minds. He wrote, we ourselves were once sinners who were foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures. And he continues on in that list. And then he says, but when the goodness, when the goodness of loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that by being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. What did Jesus come to do? He was sent and came to save sinners through his life, death, and resurrection. He was sent to proclaim the good news of the gospel. He was sent to call sinners to repent and to follow him. What did Jesus do? All of those things. He successfully did what he was sent to do, and he did it for people like you and like me. And the question we have now is how do we respond? And of course we believe the gospel. We repent of our sin. We receive the forgiveness that he offers. We turn to Jesus and follow him. And then we go and proclaim. We go and proclaim indiscriminately we indiscriminately call others to do the same thing, knowing that anyone and everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. There is no one outside of His reach. And to do that, we must engage and associate with and interact with sinners throughout the week, where we work and in our schools and in our neighborhoods and when we someday get back to the gym. And that may come, and that may come at the cost of our reputations in front of the Pharisees of our day, of which there are many. But may we be faithful to the call, irregardless. Let's go to the Lord in prayer.